Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning in our Sunday service. And um, if you're here in person, great to have you here. If you're visiting online or watching us online, we're always grateful to have you join us there too. Uh, if you're new to the church, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, we are this week in the second week of a series we started last week where we're teaching through the book of First Peter. And we'll be kind of in that pretty much most of the time through the summer. And so the passage we want to look at today is 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. And so if you want to pull out your Bible app or you have your Bible to open, or we'll have the verses up on the screen, you can follow along that way. The uh, title for the message today is called Joy in the Midst of Trials and Suffering. Well, most of us have probably gone through a time of trials or suffering of some sort at some point in our lives. And so when that happens, how do you typically respond when you experience trials and suffering? I mean, maybe you're one of what I would call the just hunker down and bear it kind of people. You know, you don't, you don't say much, you just kind of hunker down and you press on through and you internalize everything and you just walk through it and, and you know, deal with it the best you can. Or, or maybe you're a little bit on the other side of the spectrum and uh, you're, if you're honest, maybe a little bit more towards the grumbling and complaining side where you're pretty open and quick to share people about how difficult life is and complaining about people and circumstances and situations. Whether it's to people or to God, that would be kind of your modus operandi. Or maybe you're somewhere more in the middle. Maybe you're just one of these people where, you know, you don't complain, you don't kind of just hunker down, but really you just sort of cry out to God to help you understand why this is happening. You know, you, you want an explanation from God so you can figure out whatever it is you need to learn or do in hopes that that'll make this difficult time go away. And maybe there's some other way you would typically respond in those times. But, but what about responding with joy? Uh, is joy a response category that even crosses your radar when you're going through a tough time of suffering or trial? I mean, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, the Bible ties joy and trials and suffering together really in a number of places. James 1 verse 2, for example, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, having joy when going through trials and suffering, I mean, how in the world do you do that? Well, in our text for today, in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12, Peter wants to help us answer that very question. Because Peter also ties joy and trials together in this letter. And as we saw last week, Peter is writing to believers who are scattered through the area of what we would call modern-day Turkey. And, and they're experiencing trials and suffering in different ways as they seek to faithfully live out their lives as believers. 
and they're confused. They're struggling with discouragement as they encounter these trials. And really, much like us, joy probably wouldn't be the first word that would come to their minds to describe their experience in these trials. And so in these verses, Peter gives a framework, if you will, for how to think about and understand trials and suffering you experience in life. He tells us that if we really understand trials and suffering and how they relate to our life as a Christian, joy is not only possible, but likely to be our response in the midst of times like that. But if that's going to happen, he says there are some things we need to know. Some things we need to believe. There are some things we need to remember and hold on to when those times of trials and suffering come our way. And that's what Peter wants to help us with in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Because in these verses, Peter gives us three things we need to remember to have joy in trials and suffering. And so that's what we want to look at today. Three things we need to remember to have joy in trials and suffering. So before we dig into this, let's take a moment and ask God to be with us. Lord, as we come to this passage of Scripture, it seems almost strange to us that the words joy and suffering could even be in the same sentence. And yet, Lord, that's what you tell us here in this passage. And so, Lord, I pray that for the glory of your name and the good of your people that you might use this time today to be a blessing, not only to those who are going through trials and difficulty now, but, Lord, sooner or later we will all find ourselves there. And so, Lord, send the presence and power of your spirit to be upon us today and fill this place with your presence that you might bless your people and help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. And, Lord, do this for the glory of your name and the good of your church, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing Peter says we need to remember to have joy in trials and suffering is the certainty of our salvation. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 together. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verses 3 through 5, Peter, there are three things Peter wants us to remember when we experience trials and suffering about the certainty of our salvation. And the first one is that God accomplished it. Verse 3 says, according to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. If you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's because of one reason and one reason only. God caused you to do that. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You chose to place your faith in Jesus Christ, but the question is, what caused you to do that? Was it your wisdom or rational insight that somehow brought you to see and understand the gospel message? You know, did you consider the idea that the infinite, divine, eternal God would come down and become a man and take on human form? Did you consider that and say, yeah, you know, that kind of makes sense? Was it your astute analysis that led you to trust in a man who died on a cross 2,000 years ago to pay for your sins and give you eternal life? Was it your careful evaluation that caused you to believe that this same man rose from the dead? Well, maybe you think so. But Peter says God did that. He caused you to be born again. And we we really looked at this in more detail last week. But what God did is, uh, Peter tells us that, that before the world was ever made, God chose you. If you're a believer in Jesus, God chose you to be his. And when the time was right, he ordained the circumstances where you got a chance to hear the gospel message. And when you heard, he worked in your life through his spirit to open your eyes that you might see and understand that message and believe it. And in so doing, you then willfully chose to put your faith and trust in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. God did that. Now, why did God do that for you or for me? Now, there's mystery. Why would God choose you or me for this incredible salvation? Well, there's really only one answer the Bible gives us, and it's in this verse. Peter says, according to his great mercy. It was purely God's mercy and kindness that would cause him to look upon you or me and choose to set his love on us that he might cause us by his grace to be born again according to to his mercy. The Apostle Paul, speaking about these same things in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 6, it says it this way, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, Paul says it's, it's that when, when the universe, the angels, when all the universe looks upon God's 
incredible grace and mercy to sinful human beings like us in saving them and making them a part of his salvation and eternal kingdom. The whole universe says that is the most amazing thing we could ever see. That that's the praise of God's glorious grace. That he would do that for people like us. You know, I remember a while ago, I was really just kind of mulling, meditating on this in sort of a devotional time I was having. And I was, I was just kind of thinking through, Lord, why in the world would you ever choose to set your love on me and choose me to be yours? I, I mean, I, I despised you. I, I dishonored you in every way in my life. I disobeyed just about everything you ever stood for. Why in the world would you ever want to choose me? You should have executed me. And as I was just wrestling and thinking about that, and I thought, well, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's kind of like the, the cosmic lottery. You know, maybe God just randomly says, I'm take that one, that one, that one. You know, maybe it's like just some random lottery kind of process. And I think as I was thinking about that, I felt like God's spirit just spoke very clearly to me and said, no, it's not like that at all. Said, I chose you before you were ever born. I made you for myself. And so you see, if, if you sit here as a believer in Christ today, it's because God chose before the world was ever made to make you, to create you to be his. And the certainty of our salvation is rooted in this amazing reality that the almighty sovereign God is the one who accomplished it for us according to his great mercy. Second thing Peter tells us about the certainty of our salvation is that God keeps it. Look at me at verse 4. He says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This salvation God has accomplished for us, it gives us an unbelievable inheritance as one of God's chosen people. And Peter uses three words in verse 4 to describe this inheritance. He says it is, first of all, imperishable. It will never cease to exist. It is eternal. There will never be a time when it will no longer be. I mean, look around you. All this will perish and pass away one day. I mean, walk outside, look at the sun and at nighttime, look at the, the stars and just imagine the, the billions of galaxies. If we could pull up that picture for a second. Um, this is just a telescope picture. These are galaxies. I mean, this is infinitely huge universe we live in and and God says the day is going to come when all that's going to pass away and be remade. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
And the heavenly bodies, those galaxies we just looked at, will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything around us will be gone and remade. But you know what won't be gone? Your inheritance that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is imperishable. It will never pass away. Second word he uses to describe it is it is undefiled. It will always be perfect in every way. Its purity and perfection will never be diminished. You know, sin defiles everything in this world. But there will never be any sin or any other kind of corruption that will ever defile your inheritance. It will always forever be perfect, pure, and undefiled. And then the third word he says, it says it's unfading. It will never dim, never become less glorious over time. It will never lose any of its beauty and splendor. I mean, everything around us fades, right? Our clothes fade. Our cars wear out and break down. They fade. Our bodies fade. But this inheritance that is yours in your salvation, it will never fade. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And Peter says in verse 4, it is kept in heaven for you by God himself. God already has it planned and prepared, and he's keeping it secure in his sovereign power until you arrive to take possession of it. But God's not only keeping our inheritance for us. The third thing Peter tells us is about the certainty of our salvation is that he's keeping us for it. Look at verse 5. It says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, Peter says God's power is guarding us until this glorious inheritance is finally revealed when Christ returns. The word guarded here, it has the idea that you're kept safe and secure. You're carefully watched. And God's power is keeping you safe and secure until the day your inheritance is revealed. How's God doing that? He's keeping us through our faith. Now, we need to be careful here that we don't misunderstand the language and what he's saying. It's not your faith that's keeping you. It's not you keeping you through your faith. God is keeping you through your faith. In other words, it's God who energizes and sustains your faith. The reason we persevere in our faith is because God is the one who makes sure that happens. And this is really the, the wondrous grace that is ours in the new covenant Jesus brought about in his saving work. God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, describes this New covenant in this reality in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 40. God says, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 
I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts and that they may not turn from me. You see that last part? God says, I'm going to put the fear of me in their hearts and they will not turn away from me. I mean, what? What incredible news that is. God's grace and power will shield and keep those who are his all the way to their inheritance. Their faith will not fail. No matter what trials and suffering they may go through, they will persevere in faith and trust because God will see to it. So we need to know and remember this when trials or suffering come. I mean, have you ever been in the midst of some season of trial or suffering and wondered whether your, your faith and trust in God might fail? I mean, maybe it's the loss of a loved one uh, who you were very close to, a, a spouse, a child, a parent. Or maybe some other really difficult thing you walk through. And as you kind of face that time of suffering and hurt and pain. Maybe you felt like you were standing on the beach. And there's a hundred foot tsunami wave about to wash over you of hurt and grief and pain. And it's just going to overwhelm and sweep you away. And perhaps as you went through that time, you, you were just very aware of the weakness and the lack in your faith, the questions, the doubts, the, the, the questions of trust from God as you walk through that season. But you know, Peter would say to you, have no fear. God is the one who will keep you and protect and sustain your faith during times like that. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, too, as he encourages us to run this race of following Jesus in this life, he says this, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God with all authority, all the power. And the writer of Hebrews says, he is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He keeps it for you. So Peter tells us here that our salvation and future inheritance, they are absolutely secure and certain to be fulfilled. Why? Because it's completely dependent on God and his power and not on us. God accomplished it. God keeps it. God keeps us for it. And so we need to know and remember this. When trials or suffering come, it will make all the difference in the world in how we respond. That's exactly what Peter tells us in verse 6. 
He says, in this you rejoice. In this certainty of this great salvation you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You know, I remember last year, uh, back in January, I think it was, of 2021, um, there was the, one of the biggest Mega Millions lottery jackpots ever. You, you know how it goes. Every week, you know, they have the jackpot and they draw uh, the numbers. And if nobody wins, the jackpot just keeps getting bigger, 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 bigger. Well, this jackpot in January of 2021 was over a billion dollars. And so they drew the, the numbers for that week and somebody won. One person won the entire thing. And they, I think they lived in Michigan somewhere and, and they wouldn't come forward and identify themselves. But I, I just was thinking, I was thinking, you know, I, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what they're going through. I mean, maybe they were someone who really was going through a difficult time of financial trial and struggle. I mean, maybe they were a senior, uh, you know, trying to make it on a fixed income, barely being able to do it. I mean, maybe they were unemployed and, and you know, wondering how they're going to put food on the table. I mean, maybe their mortgage is overdue and they're having trouble paying it or, or their credit card debt has just gotten out of control. And I thought, you know, when they matched those numbers to the winning numbers drawn, how insignificant did those financial trials suddenly become. I mean, do you, do you think they felt a little joy in the moment when they realized that that billion was theirs and that it was coming their way? See, they had an inheritance coming that made all those trials and difficulties they may have been going through literally insignificant in comparison. And see, here's the thing. That Mega Millions jackpot, it's temporary. It will fade and pass away. Your inheritance, far more glorious, and it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so when trials and suffering come, we need to remember the certainty of our salvation. Second thing Peter says we need to remember is the privilege of our salvation. Not only is this salvation absolutely certain, but it is beyond anything we can think or imagine. I'm going to skip down to verses 10 through 12, and then I'll come back to 6 through 9 in a little while. But let's look at verses 10 through 12. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. <clears throat> See, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets were searching out the meaning of God's 
promised salvation and the Messiah who would come to bring it to pass. They were given insight into these mysteries to a certain degree by God's Spirit. They saw that he would suffer and die. They saw the glory that would be his after his suffering. And so they searched diligently to know when and how these things would unfold. They literally spent their lives digging into and trying to understand how this salvation that was talked about by God would come about. But they never received the whole story. Because in the things they saw and wrote, Peter says, they were serving us. The things they saw and wrote were intended by God to help us know and understand what's that salvation when it came. You see, they didn't see or understand everything. But now you can. These amazing mysteries are now proclaimed with clarity by those who preach the gospel message. And this salvation is is far greater than anything the prophets saw or imagined in the Old Testament. You see, the the most they could fathom was was an earthly kingdom where this inheritance was a physical promised land in the land of Canaan. And and God's king was a human king and God would dwell among his people, but not in a way that you would be comfortable approaching him. And they had no clue that those Old Testament realities were were just the faint shadows of the true reality. No idea that the the real reality was an eternal kingdom, a, a perfect eternal kingdom where God's people would live in his presence with complete freedom and access to him, experiencing all the wonders of his grace and love forever in a brand new remade heavens and earth. had no clue that it was so vast and unimaginable to them. And this, this salvation, it's, it's at the heart of the Bible's story. It's what the entire Old Testament pointed to. It's at the center of God's purpose in creation. The salvation of God's people is the central purpose in all human history. And it's So amazing, even the angels long to understand and gaze upon it. And God's amazing love and grace to his people leaves even the angels shaking their heads in wonder. And to be a part of this salvation is the highest privilege in the universe. And so, let me ask you as you Sit here or listen online. Are you a part of this salvation? Because see, that's really why Jesus came. He came so that he could make a way for fallen, sinful human beings to have a part in this incredible salvation. Because you see, in our fallenness and in our sinfulness, we we could never share in that kind of reality with a holy God. And we would spend our eternity in a far worse place. 
But Jesus came to rescue us and make a way for us to have a place in this incredible salvation God has prepared for his people. And he did that by, by coming and living a perfect, obedient life that he might earn a righteousness that would, he could give to us to give us access to that. And he gave himself to die on a cross to pay for all the sins that would keep us from being a part of that. He paid the price for them. So that we, by putting our trust and faith in him, for the, to be the savior who would make a way for us to share in this salvation, by, by turning our life over to him, making him our Lord and savior, we can have a part in this eternal kingdom. And, and if you never put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. God's still inviting you today to, to, to come, to come to him. He says, if you come, he will never cast you out. And that anyone who would come and believe and put their trust in Jesus can have a part in this incredible salvation. The doors are still open to come in. And so if, if God is tugging at your heart, if he's showing you that you, you need a savior and Jesus is that savior that God has sent, I would just encourage you, don't, don't shut that down. Don't ignore it. Don't turn away from it. Because the day will come when, when you realize what, what an incredible mistake you made if you do that. And the day will also come when those doors will close. And there will no longer be a chance to enter into this salvation that Peter talks about here. And if this salvation is at the center of God's purposes in all of created history, there is no trial or suffering that can compare to the incredible privilege and blessing being a part of God's salvation is. That's why Peter really, I think, begins this passage in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just exclaiming praise and blessing to God for this amazing salvation that Jesus has brought about. And so when trials and suffering tempt us to drop our gaze onto our circumstances and problems, when the world around us feels like it's going to overwhelm us, it's in these moments we need to remember the privilege of our salvation in these kind of moments. Because no trial or difficulty we face can shake the certainty and the wonder of God's purpose for his people. And if we see how great this salvation is, if we see how privileged we are by God's grace to be a part of it, we can know joy even in the midst of trials and suffering. But there's one more thing Peter tells us that we need to remember. And that's the third thing we want to look at. And that's the purpose of trials and suffering in our salvation. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. He says, in this, this salvation we've been talking about, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, various trials, Peter says, if necessary, you've been experiencing various trials, and that could refer to any number of things. Could be verbal or physical persecution or mistreatment. Maybe spiritual struggles in our battle and struggle against sin and temptation. Might also include physical suffering and pain. But trials and suffering are designed by God for a specific purpose in our lives. And the first thing Peter tells us here in verse 7 is that trials and suffering test the genuineness of our faith. See, how we respond in times of trial proves that our faith is real. You know, Jesus told a parable about uh, how when the message of the gospel is proclaimed and, and the word of God is proclaimed, that that word is like a farmer sowing seed. And he says some of that seed, it, it falls on the, the path that's hard and, and the birds come and eat it. And that's like people who hear the word, but they just reject it. They turn away from it. And he said, some falls on good soil, and it grows and bears fruit. And and he said, some falls on rocky soil. And the rocky soil is this idea that where the the soil is rock with a thin layer of soil on the top of it. And he said this about the rocky soil in... um, Uh, Luke 8, 13, he says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. You see, those who fall away from faith and trust in God when trials come, they show that their faith wasn't really real. Because God keeps and sustains the faith of those who belong to him. Now, don't misunderstand here. That that doesn't mean that there can't be times of deep doubts and struggles as we try to hang on to kind of our faith. And there can be times when it seems like our faith is maybe hanging by a thread if it's hanging at all. So it doesn't deny the reality that we can wrestle with that in our experience. But for those who have truly placed their faith in Christ, trials don't destroy your faith. They build and strengthen your faith. Peter actually uses this picture in here of of the refining of gold as an example. Because, you know, when when you want to purify gold, you put it in a furnace, you heat it up, you melt it, and the impurities rise to the surface where they can be skimmed off. And what you're left with is a pure form of gold. And Peter says that's that's the way God uses trials in our life. 
Because it's in those times of trial when impurities kind of rise to the surface. Do you ever notice that trials kind of squeeze sin out of you a bit? You know? You're quicker to get angry, quicker to get upset, quicker to complain, quicker to grumble. Trials just have a way of squeezing the impurities out of us. And God, through that, works in our hearts to bring change and transformation. And really, one of the ways God protects you through faith for your inheritance is by purifying and strengthening your faith through trials and suffering. You know, that, that's really how God is preparing us for our coming inheritance. See, your faith, Peter says, is the most precious thing there is to God. It's more precious than gold. And when that final day comes, when Christ comes to bring our inheritance, nothing will be worth more on that day than your faith. And verse 7 says, it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the question is, praise and glory and honor for who? For you or Jesus? The answer is both. Jesus will receive praise and honor and glory through your faith and trust in him, especially in times of trials and suffering. But you also will receive praise and honor and glory because of your faith and trust in him and how you live that out. See, here's the thing. The rewards of your inheritance are directly tied to your faith. You see how this works? See, God's using trials and suffering to prepare you to receive a richer inheritance. He's using them to build and strengthen your faith. And as that strengthened faith is demonstrated in how you live that out in day-to-day life, you're earning an, an internal reward as a result of that. This is why why Peter says you can have joy in the midst of trials and suffering because God is using those very trials to build your faith and in so doing increase the measure of your eternal reward. You know, in this world, faith doesn't get much, if any, reward. Instead, it can often result in trials and suffering. But men and women, it it will be greatly rewarded when that day comes. But you know, there's still more that Peter wants us to see here about joy. Let's look at verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Speaking about Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, in this verse, Peter is talking about our present relationship with Jesus in this life. We can have inexpressible joy now in our living relationship with Jesus Christ, even in times of trials and suffering. And maybe you're wondering, how is that possible? Joy isn't my typical response when I encounter trials and suffering and difficulties. And this joy inexpressible Peter talks about, it doesn't come because of the trial itself. 
It comes from knowing just how secure and safe we are in Jesus' incredible, perfect love for us. Even in the midst of trials and difficulties. Jesus ties this together in John 15, verses 9 through 11. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now, when we look at these verses, the the first thing Jesus says here should just give you a week's worth of meditation. When Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. With, with, I, I mean, that's just, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around that. The infinite divine love that the Father has for the Son, the perfect, immeasurable love. Jesus says, that's the same love with which I love you. And he says, abide in that love. Stay in it. Rest in it. How do you do that? Yeah, just walk with me. Follow me, Jesus says. You know, do your best to, to honor me and how you live out each day. And, and that love, abide in that love. And, and what's the consequence? That you will know joy, that inexpressible joy I think Peter's talking about. And no matter what kinds of trials and suffering we may encounter in this life, we can rest secure in the perfect, unchanging love that Jesus has for us. And Jesus' love for us is everything we ever hoped being love could be. It will never leave us or desert us. It will always act toward us in ways that are for our ultimate good. It will never change or withdraw no matter what we do or don't do. It will never turn away from us because of our performance or lack of obedience to God. It never gets less. It never gets more. It is always constant and forever the same. And if you ever doubt how secure and safe you are in the greatness of his love, the Bible would say, just just look at the cross. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 6 through 8. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly, that's you, that's me. We were the ungodly. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, if you want to see God's love, then look at the cross, because God should have executed me rather than save me. Because when I was his enemy, when I was hostile and hated him, he he paid the highest price that could ever be paid out of his love to make me his. And the same is true for you. 
He gave the most precious thing that he had, his own son, to suffer and die and bear the horrors of crucifixion and the horrors of the very wrath of God for our sins so that he could make us his. Paul says that's the demonstration of the love of God for you. And if God would love you like that when you deserved his judgment, how can you ever think his love won't keep and sustain you now that you're his chosen, precious child? See, God uses trials and suffering to build and strengthen your faith. And that stronger faith builds your relationship with Christ here and now. And in the midst of trials, Jesus often reveals himself to us in ways that show us who he is to us in our need. And we see and encounter his love for us more fully. And though we can't see him, we believe in him and all that he is to us in his love for us. And Peter says in verse 8, that produces a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It produces more joy in our relationship with him now and in verse 9, he says, it will one day result in the obtaining the final outcome of your faith, the full salvation of our souls. When we will know him and the greatness of his love for us in all of its amazing, glorious wonder. If I could have the worship team come and join me. So what's the purpose of trials and suffering in our lives? Well, they strengthen and build our faith. And as that takes place by God's master hand, it results in more praise and glory and honor when the day of your inheritance finally comes for both you and Jesus. And you get a deeper relationship with Jesus right here and now. A growing experiential knowing of his love for you. That's why you can have joy even in the midst of trials and suffering. So when trials and suffering come into our lives, it's, it's not just what you do, but what you believe and remember in those times that really matters. And when those seasons of trials and suffering find us, as they inevitably will at some point in our lives, it may be now or at some time in the future. But when that happens, we need to believe and remember the certainty of our salvation. We need to believe and remember the amazing privilege of our salvation. And we need to believe and remember the purpose of trials and suffering in our salvation. And if we will do that. And hold fast to these things. We can have joy. Even in the midst. Of trials and suffering. So as we close. Let's stand together and sing this song. And my prayer for you as you sing. Is that no matter where you are right now. Or what you may be going through that God by his spirit might give you a fresh taste of that inexpressible joy Peter speaks of in this message, in this passage, that comes from knowing that Jesus has you firmly in the grip of his perfect loving 
hands. And that no matter what may come your way in this life, he will never, ever, ever let you.